This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by McDonald's, obviously McDonald's in the news this week, Franklin, for making what I think is a courageous stand in uh, what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. Franklin, I know as a uh, as a loyal patriot, you have been doubling down on McDonald's this week. The Coley family is eating at McDonald's this week in, uh, in, a, in expressing its support for McDonald's decision. So proud of the brand and the industry. And uh, we're traveling next week for spring break, so we'll be we'll be dipping in anyway next week. But I will get in, be getting my two cheeseburger meal. That's my uh, that's my go to in the McDonald's menu, and uh, I couldn't be couldn't be more happy to spend my dollars at McDonald's this week. I recently had a double quarter pounder with cheese, and I must admit it was it brings a tear to your eye. It's so delicious. One thing I've always been fascinated by with McDonald's is just the pure consistency. Just the consistency of you, you roll up to one McDonald's in you know Hickory, North Carolina, and it is the same as McDonald's in College Park, Maryland. Their consistency is, is uh, phenomenal. I used to, when I was a dard night, I used to uh, revel at the consistency of the Olive Garden. You could just have the exact same meal all over the country. It was, it was just well-managed and well-choreographed. We'll talk a lot about McDonald's in the podcast today. And on that note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go superside. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We need a political revolution. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch coming up on the podcast. McDonald's and other restaurant industry players take a stand on Russia and are ceasing their operations there in response to the invasion of Ukraine. We'll take a look at the calculations that companies make when they decide to enter, either willfully or begrudgingly, into the high-stakes game of public policy. We'll also take a look at what the move toward a cashless economy is having on tipping, not only from the perspective of the worker, but also with regard to the ongoing debate around eliminating the tipping system altogether. And of course, we'll have another installment of Starbucks Watch, where this week the unions get to take a few more victory laps in Buffalo. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the pod. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my Align Public Strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Franklin, as we alluded to in the open, uh, it has been a big week. We talk at length on this pod about how so many large issues play out in the dining rooms of the restaurant industry, whether it's mask mandates or wages and union activism. And we're at the crossroads of all these conversations. Well, we, uh, we're at the crossroad of another big conversation in McDonald's, Starbucks, Yum, uh, Burger King, all in the news this week about actions that they are taking with regard to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Franklin, what do you make of all this? Starbucks, too. But it all started with McDonald's, and McDonald's deserves a lot of credit. We've talked about a lot of kind of political stances and, and you know, political-based decisions at brands. We talk, we look back and talk about Starbucks shutting down all their locations for a sensitivity training and gosh, how much that cost and what a bold move. Nothing is even in the realm of comparable to what McDonald's has done this week relative to Russia. We have never, you know, in, in the history of this podcast and probably the history of my life seen a decision as consequential that a brand has made as McDonald's. So, 
applaud them. They're one of many companies that have made similar decisions in the past week or so. Some people are kind of knocking them a little bit for not making the decision last week, for making the decision, you know, early Monday this week. I mean, come on, you know, this this is 9% of the company's revenue. These are complex business relationships with more or less independent companies over there. And so these are not easy decisions to make, but McDonald's should be applauded for, I mean, just the scale of a joke, 9% of their revenue, they decided to shutter up and shut down for who knows how long, maybe forever. And they're going to continue to go ahead and pay workers to ensure that, you know, this isn't felt by, by workers, their workers, which is reminiscent of what some of the brands did early on in the pandemic. And I think that, that, approach served them well, Outback and Darden, for instance. I mean, that that's a big, bold commitment and decision. And and quite frankly, I don't know if it's gotten enough attention. It's gotten a lot of attention, but it's a huge decision. We've never seen anything like this. We've never discussed anything like this. Well, and in, in the whole, the, the second part of that is, you know, that those revenues, losing those revenues is a big deal, not to be discounted. But they are putting billions and billions of dollars of brick and mortar infrastructure at risk. The Russian government per se does not play by the same rules as the American government. And it would be very easy for the regime to just seize those assets, uh, much as like other governments are seizing and freezing assets of Russian oligarchs throughout the country. I mean, so McDonald's is risking not only that, that sales revenue, they're risking every dollar they've put into Russia over the last 30 years. It is a seriously courageous step that they've taken a lot of risk here and i I just kind of sit back and as i each day as i read more and more of the headlines i'm kind of more in awe of of what they decided to do and the stand they made and again being a corporate geek that i am i just would love to have been in those conference tables and those meetings when they were deciding and mapping this out because you know obviously whatever they do or don't do you know they're, they're doing this they're going to get litigation from whatever those assets are in Russia, they're you know business partners, people depending on them. So it is it is not you know the, the activist community thinks it's just so easy for a company to you know say this or do that and react in the manner of a tweet in thirty seconds. There is a lot of stuff that has to be vetted and understood and trademark law and the Russians now it appears, you know, if they do take some punitive action against McDonald's, it'll be a seizing those trademarks. So it was a big, big gamble by the company. And, you know, we're all, we're all watching. And the McDonald's team, of course, going in knew that a potential end game was here that they basically just seize the assets, right? One of the things that I, I didn't realize until I was reading some of the coverage. And by the way, the McDonald's opening in Moscow and 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 all that was like a, a formative period of my life where I was reading in my, you know, middle school, you know, world history book about perestroika and glass nose. So I remember all that stuff. We had Ukrainian soccer players from Kiev come stay with us as part of an exchange program when I was in the fourth, fifth, sixth grade, when when kind of all this was happening. And so I remember like all this, it is it is defining for me. So reading about it is crazy. And what I didn't understand and what I didn't remember now is when McDonald's arrived, there was basically nothing like it in the country and there was no infrastructure, you know. So 
McDonald's had a blank slate and essentially had to go build the entire supply chain for McDonald's, which eventually has supported the explosive growth across Russia, you know. So to your point, Joe, it's not just the storefronts. You know, we think about the storefronts and God, it's a lot of storefronts. But there's a there's a whole supply chain built into that that McDonald's had to go and build in order to be able to operate restaurants in in the country. So it's a lot more than just a ton of restaurants. There's a lot of other probably assets that McDonald's is invested in as well within those distribution and supply chains there. And so it is this is not this is a huge decision, consequential decision, unprecedented decision. And, you know, from within within Russia, you know, public opinion is and communications are tightly controlled by the Kremlin. But when when everyday Russians are seeing McDonald's shut down and seeing that they can no longer swipe their their bank card because MasterCard and Visa are doing business and and all these things, that's these actions by American companies start to penetrate that tight control within Russia. And so these actions are critical towards awaking the Russian people that, you know, Russia isn't just going in and liberating Ukraine. They are hearing the the Russian today kind of RT line every day. And unless there's actions like this by companies and others to disrupt that, there, there, there's no way to, to change public opinion within Russia. And so it's a really important move and it's it's unprecedented and we're going to continue to see the fallout. I couldn't be more proud of McDonald's. Well, Frank, I was going to come at the same line of argument, but from the completely other side of it in the sense that, you know, those brands and the actions of those brands showing the, the Russian people what's actually going on in the world. Uh, the same thing with, 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 you know, you talk about Glassdose and, and Perestroika. It, the, it, the, the introduction of those brands in the, in, in the 80s showed the Russian people what was going on in the world. And you could make a, a, a valid argument that was, you know, the beginning of the end of, of the Soviet Union. Once the Soviet people understood and began to understand how the rest of the world was living, uh, you know, you can see the dominoes starting to fall. And Putin clearly is trying to, you know, reassemble the glory days of, of, of the USSR, one of these republics, Belarus and Ukraine and potentially the Baltics and put that 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 house back together again. And, you know, the, it, it's so interesting what you just said, because you took the words out of my mouth. But it, I was going back 30 years, shocking as that may be to you. But it's the same thing. It's the power of those brands and the power of commercial activity that can that can you know, move the, the, the ethos of the people. So I, I'm really proud of McDonald's as well. I don't want to discount what other brands have done. We've talked about Starbucks, you know, uh, RBI, Burger King has made some significant uh, financial contributions. Their ownership structure is a little different. It might not be as easy for them. You know, I don't want to judge what companies are, are doing or not doing. Everybody's different and has different structures and so forth, different footprints. But McDonald's should be, um, should be commended. Franklin, one last piece on this. And you know, we talk about this a lot in our office, on our, our podcasts and our, in our uh, publications, you know, the role of corporations, the role of corporate brands, you know, pro and con in these public policy conversations. Obviously, you're seeing, uh, you know, political brands being drawn into domestic politics. We talked, you know, you've seen Chick-fil-A get battered around for years. We're seeing Disney getting pummeled this week on, on some domestic stuff. 
is this a new marker for corporate brands in terms of weighing into this stuff? Is this a new, a new stake in the ground of what corporations should be or should not be doing it? Or will in six months from now, we'll kind of forget about it. In some ways it's new and in some ways it's old. So if, if we had gone back to world war two, this would have been expected of American companies, right? So this is clearly black and white. This would have been expected of American companies. Now the world is much different today than it was, you know, during that, that, 40s, you know, 50s time period, right? We're much more interconnected. It's much harder to for American companies to to kind of make these commitments. But um, it, this would be the way that an American company would have would have acted in in World War Two, World War One, whatever. Um, and so, in some ways, it's old, but in other ways, it's new. And we've seen brands you you kind of flop around in terms of projecting their corporate values. One that comes to mind is you know. Airbnb, and we've seen others try to engage in, you know, Israel, Palestine, you know, listing of of properties that are in, you know, disputed territory and kind of get sideways with Israel and, and, you know, the BDS list and all that. And so we've seen brands try to engage in spaces like this, that it's not clear cut and and they've they've clumsily kind of fumbled through that. this is, in my mind, much more clear cut. And I think that is so it's new, Joe. I do think it sets a new marker, but I think it harken, harkens back to an, an older age when there was an expectation that we were going to see companies act in this way. I think companies are trying to do this more. It's just there's oftentimes it's a lot grayer in terms of so much more complicated. So much more complicated now. Exactly. 100%. And this is pretty black and white. And I think at the end of the day, that's probably the determination that a lot of companies, McDonald's included, have have come to in this space. If 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 this is not too much where we draw a line, then then what is right? And God bless them for making that determination, because, you know, I I think it's critically important. But um, but yeah, you know, the, the world is, I think, going to look different after this engagement. It, it, it's going to depend on how long it goes on for and what the end game is and what. But but I think it's going to change a lot of things. And, you know, companies are going to have to figure that out as well as the rest of us. Right. Um, but I think things are going to be different after this. Well, Frank, I'm following up on that last conversation, we you know, kind of alluded to it. You know, here here on this side of the pond, more and more companies are getting dragged into the political conversation. I mentioned uh, uh, Chick Fil A. I mentioned Disney. It, it appears that that the, the the Republican Party is more and more wedging business interests against social interests, and that companies more and more are going to find themselves in this kind of inter Republican Party civil war what what should part what, what should companies be looking out for or expecting in this space yeah so we were talking about it before that you know the republican party used to be the chamber of commerce party more or less you know there was a period there where um the republican party was kind of the represent the business community's interest and as donald trump kind of sped this dynamic up but as republicans have increasingly leaned into 
cultural issues. It's not new, you know, going back to the immigration issue 15 years ago, Republicans were leaning into that. And that was a challenge with the business community. But at that time, that was largely like the big wedge between the business community and the leading Republican voices. That's no longer the case. We have a ton of issues now where these cultural issues were seeing a divide between the business community and leading Republicans. Now let's flash down to our home state, Mr. Joe Kefauver, where, where Ronnie D this week, Governor DeSantis and the CEO of Disney, at the request of the CEO of Disney, had a conversation about the quote unquote, don't say gay bill that has just been passed by the legislature is handed the head of the governor's desk for a signature. Ron DeSantis took that call with the CEO to talk about the issue, saying he wasn't going to veto it, but taking the call as you would for a major employer in the state. He then turned around and went in Fox News and just karate chopped Disney in the throat. And I got a fundraising email from uh, the DeSantis campaign. Let me just pull it up real quick. At about eight o'clock last night, let me just read the, the headline here. The headline of the fundraising email is Woke Disney Falls to the Media Pressure. And then the, the first line is Woke Disney is now echoing Democratic propaganda and the corporate media's phony hysteria. So this was good for Ron DeSantis. He's going to go run on this and fundraise on this and a number of other issues, right? He's going to run for the Republican uh, primary. Probably good for Disney because they can show their employees and, and their customer base that they were doing something, even though they really did very little. But this, just to take and put this in perspective, Joe, Disney is the thousand pound gorilla in the state of Florida. It is the economic engine, one of them, of the state of Florida. It has incredible political sway, incredible political sway. Ron DeSantis is arguably the front runner, one of the front runners for the Republican nomination. And to have the Republican governor of the home state, we'll call it the home state, the home state, the Disney theme park, let's put it that way, the big one, going essentially publicly to war with the largest, one of the largest employers in the state, that is a new day, my friend. That is a new day. That's something we haven't seen before. And that is a dynamic that companies all across the country should be concerned about because they're already getting it from the left. Now they're getting it from the right. That's that's just, that's tough. That's tough to, to maintain. And you see this manifest in all sorts of legislation this year. And, 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 and that's the, that's the point. Because I know you have some thoughts, my friend. That's the point. They're getting it from all sides. And they have to have their own core value. We keep saying it on this pod. Your number one constituency cannot be fleeting politicians. It has to be your employees. Disney brought this on them, in my humble opinion. Disney brought this on themselves because they put out some internal memo. Where they tried to thread the needle and try to, you know, stay out of the fracas and blah, blah, blah. And they got pummeled initially by their own employee base. And so they, they, they didn't approach it from a, a, what our corporate values are as a company. I don't care whether they're for it or against it. They just didn't stand up for their employees first. And, and they made the, the fundamental flaw that, and they walked right into it and they became a political football because they didn't advocate for their employees first. And it's the mistake that companies are going to have to learn in this new environment. We, we, the employer community don't have this red backstop that we used to have that would defend us. At, at all times, that was always there for us. It is the, the Republican Party is no longer the suits; it's the boots, and they don't care about 
this brand or that brand in there. They're, 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 they're political fodder like anything else. And I, and, and I, you know, the old guard of corporate leadership can't seem to get that through their skulls. And Disney's a perfect cautionary tale of what not to do in this kind of situation. And, you know, re- regardless of how it turns out, this, this is going to keep happening and keep happening and keep happening. And, and, you know, I just, it, it flabbergasted me that the way, the ham-handed way that they went about this and they just, they gave DeSantis all he needed. And now, so now you've got a, a CEO of Disney whose board's mad at him, whose governor's mad at him, and whose employees are mad at him. And it's, I don't know if you go into a whiteboard and sketch out a worse way to approach the subject. You know, the die may have been cast in this from the get-go. Some version of this was probably going to gonna pass. But the, the other challenge there is we got a, I got a bunch of emails from hospitality industry folks in last week. So the two weeks left in legislative session. When this thing was owned, the one-yard line, getting ready to go to the governor, and they were essentially leaning into some trade groups and some brands were saying, we need to get out there and, and speak on this. And I was like, guys, this, this is done. Where have y'all been? And I think that was part of the problem, too. No one weighed in on this when it was going through the legislative process. They're all jumping in on it after it's basically out of the legislative process and headed to the governor. And, you know, that looks political, that looks like they are taking a political stance because they didn't engage in any sort of way in the legislative process and, and talk about it at all through the legislative process. Now they're standing in front of TV cameras and making a big public show and to do. That looks political. The governor interprets that as political, and that immediately is going to get a political response. And so whether whether it was right or wrong to engage in this bill, putting that aside, the way in which the engagement happened at the end of the process was viewed as political. That's my point. That's my point. I'm not saying they should weigh in, they shouldn't weigh in, but they did it in a in a kind of a soulless, valueless way, and they're paying the price for it. And and it it, it was interpreted as trying to score political points. And guess what? The governor is going to turn right back around and, and score his own political points. Um, and so, and that's exactly what I predicted was going to happen when when these emails were flying around. So. You know, if, if there are issues of concern, there's a better way to engage. And if you keep your true north on how to engage, and then you're on pretty firm footing, even if you go to war with the governor or whoever, um, you're, you're in firm footing and, and you've got your, your six covered, for lack of a better term. And, and that, that is not the way the process played out here. By the way, there was like 82 other bills that um, – you know, directly kind of got in the wheelhouse of corporations. We've been talking about the, um, you know, the woke acts, right? The critical race theory bill, which targets education institutions, but also corporate trainings. Disney has kind of been on the, in the crosshairs, but, but not publicly with a lot of this stuff. It's kind of been, you know, hush hush. And it was kind of an open secret that, um, you know, Disney was in, in the crosshairs as well as others on, on some of this other stuff. So, Sabatini and some of the other kind of outspoken, you know, conservative voices. He's a bit persona non grata, but has been openly calling out Disney and stuff like this. So um, anyway, you know, this is a dynamic that's not going away. If you look at the arc, you know, we talked about immigration issues, but I remember like bathroom bills like that was like as we look at the arc, remember the bathroom bills is this one dividing issue. Right. And then 
all of a sudden now it's just the floodgates are open. It's you can hardly keep track of all the issues that are bumping up against kind of companies and companies feel like they need to say something own. And, and I think that's a trend line that's going to at least continue for the uh, foreseeable future. Yeah. I'm just disappointed. I mean, D- Disney is a big, major, important player state of Florida. They're bigger than the governor. They're bigger than blue governors, red governors. They're bigger than politics. Just stand up for yourself. Do what's right for your guy. Don't worry about what this governor is going to say or that governor. It's just, come on, remember yourself. You're, you're, you're a major American institutional iconic employer quick kowtowing to, to these opportunist politicians regardless of political stripe or background or whatnot it's just it was disappointing from a from a, a practitioner of corporate public affairs it was a disappointing exercise uh, as to how they went about doing it and so an, enough said on that Franklin, quick little side before we get to uh, our our beloved Starbucks watch. Uh, noted an article this week talking about how the move, little by little by little, toward a cashless economy is affecting the incomes of tipped employees. I'm about hotels and you know Ubers and all this stuff. This cashless economy and, and what it's doing to diminish over time the income of tipped employees. And then tangential to that, Franklin, we have this huge conversation burning in the restaurant industry with his groups that are talking about eliminating the tip credit. We've got a minimum wage bill in Hawaii that, that uh, potentially could eliminate the tip credit over time. Probably not going to won't go anywhere, but the conversation's raging in a lot of jurisdictions, the DC ballot initiative. Does this, does the activist community that's pushing for the elimination of the tipping system, can they leverage these headlines and these trend lines about what's happening in the cashless economy to workers can they can they wrap those two around and 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 get some political juice out of that well do you have a way to throw me a curveball there that's a good question i don't know I, let me let me approach it from this this way um i think i actually tip more when i swipe a card or when i when i do an app or whatever because i i end up doing you know if I pay in cash at in, in, in Dunkin' Donuts, no offense to Dunkin' Donuts, I don't usually tip, but I will throw a 50 cent tip on there with, with my card all day long. I do that routinely. I don't know that that is regular practice. I hadn't seen the numbers on this, but I think I think waiters, I think tipped workers would want cash. And I, and I think they probably generally get get better ROI on, on the cash. Part of that may be because not all that cash is reported to, but, you know, from a, let me approach it this way. Let me, let me tease this out a little bit more this way. So one, one of the arguments that unions and restaurant opportunity center and others have always had with getting away, eliminating the tip credit would be that then you get all the money into a paycheck, right? And then you can kind of deduct dues and, you know, it, it turns it more into a paycheck driven job career situation, which is a better construct for dues collection and unionization. And so when you have workers walking home with $150 a night in cash in their pocket and then their paycheck is, you know, essentially two thirteen an hour because they're taking it all out in cash, you know, that, that, that's not a good setup for, for unions and, and for benefits and, and those sorts of negotiations. So from that standpoint, Joe, I think maybe the movement to the cashless may benefit in, in some way organizers. 
But I think it's all very murky at the end of the day, to be honest with you. I'm not sure there's like clear cut winners and losers. I do think that you probably make slightly less tips in a cashless situation, particularly when you move towards not the credit card punch in, but the walkout, you know, pick up walkout, whether it's app driven or the Amazon, you know, go where you walk in and it just automatically deducts. I think that's a situation where you're like, unlike, you're probably not going to, you're going to get a lot less tips. Um, so there's just some hot takes for you right there, Mr. Kefoffer. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I you know, I, I do think, I, I do think they will try to make some capital out of, out of that trend line. But, uh, you know, again, I think they're a long way. I, I think if, if we fast forward five or 10 years, we still have basically the same tipping uh, system we do now. But it's something to keep track on for, for you know, employers, operators, you know, watching what happens to their employee tips as more and more food is going out the to-go door or being delivered and how that that shift in that tipped income and that income, that, that whole money game uh, affects the arguments around minimum wage and tip credit. So it's something for operators to watch. Starbucks Watch 2022. Franklin, remember the old the old jump rope game, Double Dutch, right? And you had the two jump ropes, and the kids are jumping in and out of the duck, in and out of the jumping ropes. And are you good at that, Joe? I was never really surprisingly. I was never good at that. Uh, I was never either. Yeah, shocking as I may be. And then you know, in Vegas, you double down, right? Certain you know, blackjack, certain certain hands are du- double down. Well, this week, the unions trying to organize Starbucks doubled down. They went from three organized units to six in one day. Franklin, what's going on with Starbucks? Well, the beat goes on. And I I think we have a lot of double up weeks ahead of us because the floodgates, like just the timing of the way of all the, I think we're up to 123 or nearly 130 units now. We're not even keeping count anymore, but units in, in in the process of, of, of unionizing. And I can't remember how many, I saw somewhere there, there was a petition count and I can't remember the number. I want to say it's a 60s, 70s range, but we're, we're approaching the point here soon where we're going to get floods of union elections happening simultaneously. And so I expect a lot of double ups in the next like two months. So we doubled up, we went from three to six. I expect at some point there'll be a week, maybe three weeks from now, we go from six or eight to, you know, 12 or 16 or whatever in, in a pretty quick clip and and maybe we get another double up for or two from there. So um yeah, I mean we're in the we're in the thick of it. We're in the meat of it and you know, I don't know how I don't know how Starbucks keeps pace at this point. You know, it's just it's just too much happening so fast. Yeah, and I was kind of, you know, opining earlier that if, you know, that, that, that Starbucks probably needed to win one or two of these uh, it's interesting to note that two of them, two of the three, vic- uh, two of the three outcomes this week were by a mere one vote. No, excuse me. One was by one vote and the other two were by 15 to 12 votes. They were still very close. So it's not a whitewash for the, 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 the unions at all. So, the, you know, the, the company is, you know, having some success with their message. You know, they're not, they're not getting blown out. But they needed to win one one or more of those this week to uh, stem the tide. Franklin, you've, you've made note that based on the the, the filing uh, cadence and when initially the initial big round uh, after Buffalo was in Boston and in some other cities, we're going to have a lot of elections 
probably in the next two weeks. I bet the next two weeks we'll probably see another five, six, seven elections, correct? Yeah, it's coming. The flood is coming. And so pushing off a of Starbucks, last week we did for Starbucks Watch, we actually did kind of a non-Starbucks watch, the independent chains that were getting spillover from the Starbucks campaign. And we we highlighted um, that that was happening in Seattle, Philadelphia, and Detroit. This week, we have another one to add to that that list. Inspired by the Starbucks campaign, this is actually a non-Starbucks market, I'm, I'm pretty sure. We have, and not to be left out, the uh, the Restaurant Opportunity Center said, hold on, we, we, we need to get in on this. And so they basically organized workers in a Nashville Three Brothers Coffee location into, into a union. They've asked for union recognition from the employer, and they're getting ready to begin the process of filing an election petition if the employer doesn't recognize the union. So again, we've got this spillover, and, and we also have additional spillover in Seattle. We reported in Seattle last week an independent chain beginning the process. I think it was three or four units in Seattle that, and they had the map in the coverage of how they lined up with the Seattle uh, Starbucks locations. We now have Amazon fresh stores, which are much closer to kind of like the restaurant industry model, if you will, than the warehouse, than the Amazon warehouse workers calling for a unionization effort in Seattle as well. So the spillover continues in Seattle. It's now into Nashville. And man, the spillover is going to hit another restaurant brand here at some point. You know, and everyone should be looking around the room at their their cohorts from around the country wondering, is it going to be you or is it going to be me? Because it, it's coming. And who knows what market it is exactly. It's probably one of these markets where we're seeing a lot of spillover now where we have a lot of Starbucks organizing activity. But the nature of this kind of organic viral organizing is it's it's a little hard to predict. And so it, it's coming, Joe. It's coming. We've got another week where we've got spillover effect. And I suspect we'll have more to report in the coming weeks. Folks, it's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the key legislative and regulatory developments that happened this week. And as always, we'll start with Capitol Hill, Franklin, uh, the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. Kind of got some bad news this week. Yeah, it's it's been coming for a while. I mean, we've we've all seen it. But Sean Kinney and the restaurant uh, and the National Restaurant Association have been doing everything in their power to kind of keep hope alive. But um, the the rider, the appropriations bill that it was likely that we could sneak RRF funding into is out the door, basically. And so that kind of closes the door on getting a re-up in funding. So it's unfortunate, but congrats to the team for the excellent work fighting. You know, it was, it was a super uphill battle here as the political dynamics have changed. We've kind of, uh, everyone's, you know, it's in the rearview mirror in, in a lot of people's minds as we as we uh, return to some sense of normal, but also look towards midterm elections. Yeah, Sean and his team to be commended. That, uh, again, they left no stone unturned. Uh, and, and, and it's amazing what they got done in the first place. You know, so it's not uh, mourn too much that we didn't get more and celebrate the, what they were able to to accomplish over the last couple of years in that fund. And maybe the, there's a little bit of light. Maybe there's a little bit of the, a door ajar that they can kind of pursue through a separate vehicle potential aid. But uh, kudos, kudos to Sean. Uh, Franklin, speaking of uh, COVID and restaurant revitalization funds, uh, Wisconsin says, hey, you don't have to count them as taxes. Uh, yep. Um, we've had a number of states kind of 
looking at different things. We've got some relief programs and uh, we've had this in other states. But, yeah, Wisconsin this week, governor signed legislation exempting monies from RRF fund from state income tax. It's a win for the industry. Speaking and probably not going to be a win for the industry, we've got some uh, legislation in Hawaii that we found ourselves here before in the last three, four, five years in a row where the House has passed a wage bill, the Senate's passed a wage bill, and then they have a kind of a standoff. We find ourselves in that same place in Honolulu again. We do. And we should say at the top here, Joe, that the first wave of states are wrapping up their legislative sessions right now. And at the exact same time, we're hitting crossover deadline for kind of the second wave of states. And so we're getting to that point in, in the in the calendar nationally where you see a lot of activity. And to your point, in Hawaii, where this is crossover deadline. So in advance of crossover deadline, the House passed legislation increasing the state minimum wage to $18 an hour by 2028. Tip credit bumps up modestly from 75 cents per hour to 275 uh, an hour. And that, that can have some impacts, you know, when the, that adds up pretty quick. I, I led with the modest, but some may say that's that's not so modest. Senate passed uh, similar legislation last month. So they're going to have to uh, hammer out the differences, but they got time to do it. So this thing is Hawaii is trucking along. This is they've heard us put them down for their their slow. It took 18 years to pass the $15 an hour um, or excuse me, the the. 10, what was it, was it, what's it phasing up to right now, Joe? It's only like 10, 10 bucks an hour right now. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, this is a huge jump. I mean, it took forever for them to act on it these past couple of years. And now they are just flying it through. So anyway, Hawaii is in the watch list for real this time, because this thing is trucking in a way that that kind of hasn't in the past. And Franklin, it doesn't directly affect restaurants, but Washington state uh, kind of took statewide Seattle's kind of wage and benefit scale for uh, transportation network drivers. Uh, uh, you know, we, 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 we flag it because it affects the wage marketplace and we flag it because it has semblances of sexual bargaining in there. What's going on in Washington state? They're setting up a re- uh, employment regime, right? That's separate and apart from the traditional employee regime and and the independent contractor regime. They're setting guardrails around drivers must be paid so much, you know, per minute, per mile, per trip. So we've talked about this whole conversation in the portable benefit space. We've talked about sectoral bargaining. This is all kind of playing in this future of work. You know, how are we going to define these transportation network drivers? Are the employees, are they subject to those laws? The independent contractors, they subject to that law. Is we going to create some new employment framework? And Washington saying, well, we'll continue working on that. But in the meantime, we're going to put some guardrails in place to make sure that um, they're making essentially a minimum wage is really what this is. It's not that because it's based on miles and trips and all this other stuff. But essentially what we're talking about is a minimum wage for that sector. It's setting up wage and benefits for a certain sector. Take out Washington, substitute California, take out Uber drivers, substitute fast food workers. It's the same principle, and it's working its way through uh, public policy in a lot of different ways and a lot of different places. So it's important to flag. Franklin, speaking of the uh, wage marketplace, entry-level jobs at one of the nation's big insurers are paying a lot more money these days. 
Well, when Target's going up to like twenty four, is that right? Is that what Target was? Yeah, yeah, twenty four dollars an hour. I mean, you gotta you gotta compete. So yeah, Nationwide Insurance Company they're announcing a minimum wage of twenty one an hour, uh, effective April fourth. So that's that's a lot, my friend. Yeah, so I think we're going to see more of these, Joe. Paid leave, Franklin. One traditional paid leave bill working its way through the process in Delaware, and one fairly unique and new type of paid leave bill has uh, almost finished the process in Virginia. Yeah, so there's there's a lot in the Delaware here. I'm going to kind of fly through this, but the Senate has passed 12 weeks of paid family medical leave. It really is intended to target large employers, 25 or more workers. And businesses with 20 to 24 workers would be required to provide only paid parental leave, whereas the the other one's paid family leave is is more broad. And fewer than 10 employees would be exempt. So they're really trying to kind of go after and put this mandate on the the large employers. And it's it's split, as we've seen in many states, between the employer-employee in this in this case evenly. So just another another state getting in the getting in the uh, the paid family leave business. Virginia legislation allowing business to voluntarily purchase private insurance plans to provide paid family leave on the way to its governor. Th- th- this is this is kind of a no brainer. Uh, you, you know, this has got bipartisan support, and you know, it falls short of what obviously Democrats want, but. You know, Virginia's taking a, a, a somewhat business-friendly approach to this issue. But it was, you know, unanim- unanimously passed the House, which is a very split chamber, one one vote, I think, one seat majority for the uh, for the Republicans, and only had two dissenting votes in the Senate. So you're talking about a, a, a bill that the it was bipartisan, bicameral. The business community was was involved in it. I know that the uh, Eric Terry from the Virginia Restaurant and Lodging. Tourism Travel Association, very involved in this as well. So I think everybody, I think, you know, it's a good compromise to your point. Probably the progressives aren't happy with it, but there is some type of workable structure to attain, to achieve paid leave through the private marketplace in Virginia. So see if other states kind of replicate that going forward. Franklin, uh, Labor Department, uh, our our friends, the Wage and Hour Division, last week making news about hiring 100 new uh, auditors. This week, they're making news again. Yeah, and and rewinding the tape to you know they struck this memorandum of of understanding with other agencies earlier the EOC and the NLRB we reported on that so we see this constant week by week kind of tick up here it's like watching the Russian army headed to the Ukrainian border <laughs> you know that's that's what we're watching at the Labor Department we're watching this slow but steady drumbeat and movement where the you know, the wage and hour division is is gearing up and, you know, they're hiring up. They've got them this MOU in place with the other agencies for enforcement. Guess what's coming, Joe? Enforcement. Enforcement's coming, guys. They're gonna start headhunting. They're gonna start looking for scalps. So we saw this in the Obama years. We're gonna see it again now. They're gonna take the stick approach, I suspect. At some point they may try to take the carrot approach. The Obama administration did that. They tried to entice companies to come into these compliance programs where they would basically give them a pass if they opened up their books and let the Labor Department come in. A lot of companies passed on that, and it was a little too close to, for comfort for many. But um, anyway, it, it's all getting ready to happen again. Um, we're going to see a lot of activity out of wage and hour in the in the coming months and, and years, really. We talked uh, earlier in the uh, pod about 
what was going on in the activism space and Starbucks and independent coffee chains. But uh, our good friends at One Fair Wage made some news out of New York this week, Franklin, with a new legal aid hotline. What's going on there? Yeah, and I think there's legislation working that's that does a similar thing as as well. You know, for me, this, you know, I, I think I jokingly responded to you and, and a couple other people when I saw this that, uh, you know, Saru went and met with the governor's staff and said, you need to end the, the tip credit because it leads to sexual harassment. They said, really? Show us some evidence of that. And one fair wage said, let's set up a tip line for sexual harassment and collect all these case studies. So that's what one fair wage is doing. Uh, they announced the launch of a new legal aid hotline for uh, New York restaurant workers facing worker violations, hostility from customers, wage theft, sexual harassment, and other safety concerns. The announcement was, <clears throat> as I said, in, in, uh, in, in conjunction with the introduction of legislation that would, uh, do the same is also tied to restaurant relief. So uh, one thing I want to point out here, Joe, um, New York City in particular has been really active on sexual harassment. So is the state. So, you know, there's a lot of teeth in terms of enforcement and legal repercussions around sexual harassment. You know, setting up this tip line is going to feed a lot of that that infrastructure. And so, I mean, obviously, this has been a, a, a focus and concern of brands since really forever, but obviously the Me Too movement shined a big spotlight on it. A lot of brands reworked some of their their trainings and, and got much more serious in this space. New York City put some requirements around that for companies, but this just kind of ups that ante even more. The Restaurant Opportunity Center is known to do protests and all kinds of stuff targeting employers. So um, expect to see more activism in this space in the New York market as one fair wage kind of finds their feet on this. Franklin, switching to sustainability, Hawaii, Washington made some news this week. EPR legislation continues to work through the process in Hawaii. That, that's the bottom line. It is it is not baked. It is not figured out. It's moving more slowly than minimum wage and a lot of other things. It's not clear that it's going to get over the finish line this year, but it's clear that the conversations this year are going to set up future conversations. Even if it doesn't pass this year, it's going to position the bill for how it's talked about next year. So employers need to continue to engage in that conversation. Switching over to Washington, legislation is on its way to the governor's desk that would set a target to reduce organic waste disposal 75% by 2030 and increase the volume of edible food recovery 20% by 2025. I have no idea what that means. Edible food recovery, Joe, what is that about? It is the probably one of the more aggressive food waste bills that we've seen uh, in a while. And uh, it's interesting. Uh, I know that they've had cities in Washington State kind of do these pilot programs. So now they're taking it statewide. You know, it, it's it's kind of like the EPR stuff. It's 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 making everybody in that in that supply chain have a, have skin in the game of you know taking care of it and addressing it. So it's interesting. We're going to drill down on that though, because edible food recovery sounds like the apple that someone had in their tray and didn't get bitten into or the catch-up packet that someone had but didn't break open, that now they're going to recover that for someone else to eat it. Yeah. And that, I mean, how's that going to work in terms of food safety? I mean, I don't know how many people, you know, I, again, I, I think, you know, it doesn't matter whether, you know, I'm personally for this stuff or against this stuff, but it's coming. And in a labor crunch, the amount of people that, that restaurants are going to be allocating in the next 10 years toward recycling 
food recovery, food waste, you know, all this stuff. It's, it's, it's going to that, that restaurant that restaurant footprint and the allocation of labor is going to look so much different in 10 years because of this stuff. That's it's, yeah. it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. 75% by 2030, you're talking about wholly redoing the infrastructure, both manpower, but also, you know, garbage collection to accommodate that. So obviously they want all this going not to the landfill, but going for composting and, uh, and maybe in some, some limited circumstances, energy production. So, uh, but definitely being diverted from the landfill. This is coming to your point, Joe. The zero waste conversation is one that ain't going away. And we need to figure out a way to make it work for us so that all the burden isn't, isn't placed on us. Um, Washington State is going to be one of the states where that conversation is going to happen sooner rather than later. Franklin, speaking of Washington, have you ever been to Washington State Capitol, the Capitol in Olympia? I have not. I've never been to Olympia. It is you know, it is one of the most beautiful state capitals in the country. If anybody ever gets a chance to stop by that state capital, not only is the building beautiful, but it sits atop this hill overlooking this lake. It is it is a super cool, one of my favorite state legislatures out there, Olympia, Washington. So on that happy note, that's another scorecard for the week. As you said, Franklin, crossover deadlines everywhere. End the session in a lot of places, including our home state of Florida today or tomorrow. Uh, so we'll have a full scorecard for you next week. Well, another week, another pod down here in the sunshine state of Florida. It is go time. It is spring break. Colleges are out. High schools and you know, secondary schools are out. Florida is flooded with people, beaches. It was announced yesterday that Major League Baseball has reached an agreement with their labor, with, with the players. And it looks like we'll have some spring training in Florida for at least a, a week or two, kind of an abbreviated spring training. It's crazy time down here, and what Floridians do during spring training is get the hell out of Dodge. Franklin, what are you doing for spring training? I was getting ready to say, yep, I mean, exactly that. Break, excuse me for spring break. Exactly that. Packing up the uh, the old family wagon there and uh, trucking on up to the uh, to the North Carolina mountains. Maybe get a little ski slash ice skating in. I actually haven't checked the uh, the the temperature up there for the past week or two, so hopefully there's maybe a little bit of snow left. But then uh, ride around in the tractor and, uh, you know, do some stuff, do some fun stuff like that as well. Kids, kids love it. We'll go hiking. You know, we'll we'll go fishing. We'll maybe ski, you know, get to see the, the grandparents, all good stuff. Well, that should be exciting. You know, I don't have um, school age kids. You know, mine are, mine are grown and gone. So I don't have the cadences of spring break. So they have no interest in seeing you, so there. Actually, there. My, my my youngest arrives home from college on Saturday tomorrow. Uh, for she's got a big contingent coming down from Syracuse to uh, warm up a little bit in the sunshine. Oh, nice. So I, yeah, but you're not going to. They, they they're coming here. They're not coming they, to you. She will, she will drive by, slow down to about twenty. 25 miles an hour, envelope of money. grab my wallet out of my pocket and keep on driving. Uh, and that will be my reuniting with my daughter this week. So anyway, hope everybody has a, a safe and happy week. Uh, we will talk to you next week. Until then, stay safe, stay informed, and we'll talk to you then.